The past few weeks, I've actually, uh, every week I've gotten a question from Gary Ferguson. He said, uh, Romans chapter 8 this week? And I said, well, no, we're going to do like a vision thing this Sunday. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Romans chapter 8 this week? Uh, well, no, we're going to do an Easter message, you know. Uh, and he came to me today, Romans chapter 8 this week? And I said, uh, no, actually, we're going um, we're gonna, to we're gonna set up Romans chapter 8. Um, but next week, Gary, next week we will be in Romans chapter 8, I promise you. So, I, at some point in, in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, I really wanted to, um, to stop and kind of talk about this question, um, which is, um, how would you define sin? And the reason why I think this is important is that really in, in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7, and we're going to be getting into 8, that if we don't define sin well it really takes all the power out of those passages. And, and what I've found is that, is that it's, it's easy when we're talking about sin, particularly sin in our own lives, that we either um, can greatly narrow the definition of sin and, and, and make it like a limited, you know, ad- adherence to a limited set of, of religious rules or we can completely broaden the definition and basically say, I just sin every moment of my life. I don't even realize I'm sinning. Every breath I take is basically I'm sinning. Um, and, and, and it becomes this really like undefined thing. And I think the problem with that is that if we are too narrow about our definition of sin, then we think we probably could handle it right? Like if the only rule I had, the only thing I thought was sin was like cutting off my hand, like I could probably handle that. I have no interest in cutting off my hand. Although the moment that's the only rule, I think probably in my human nature, I would start to look at my hand and go, I don't think I really need that thing because uh, that's just how our hearts work, right? But the, the other way, and I think the, the more common way to do it is, is out of a sense of, um, I think, a false humility, we go, everything is basically sin. Every moment of my life is sin. But if we broaden it too much, then, then really like Romans chapter 1 through 3, which is talking about kind of accountability for sin, becomes, seems a little unfair because just like every moment of my life is just sin. And, and, so, and so being held accountable for it, well, that's just every moment of my life. Like, I can't even do anything about it because it's just kind of this, this fog of sin in my life. Or the, the, the remedy for the sin in our life, the justification that we receive that Romans 3 through 5 are talking about, seems really kind of unspecific, right? Like, it's just justification, where really those chapters are talking about justification for specific transgressions in our life. That God is looking at specific transgressions and, and, and things that we have done, sins that we have done in our lives, and he's, he's holding humanity accountable for those things, but then he's also offering this justification by faith where those specific sins can be dealt with. Not some, some fog of you know, sinful generalities, but specific moments in our life that he's justified us in. And then it makes really chapters 6 through 8, if it's this kind of broad, you know, I don't really know that I can really define what's going on there, it makes it unintelligible. 
and unhelpful, honestly. You look at, at, at passages like where we started in Romans 6 and where it says, what shall we say then? Are, to we, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Well, sin is just kind of this undefined thing in my life that just every, every breath I take is kind of sinful. How can this even be intelligible, right? He's actually specifically talking about how to deal with sin, specific sin in our lives. Uh, verse 13 in chapter 6, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That doesn't make any sense. If sin is not a specific thing in our life that we can actually take hold of and have handles on and go, this is sinful in my life. And so we really, I think, need to define sin well. Because if we make it too narrow or too broad, I think our enemy is pretty happy about that because then we don't, get, we don't have to deal with it, right? It's just this, this thing that's just a fog in my life and I can't really deal with, it with specifics. It's like going hunting and, and your scope is either way too zoomed out so you can't even really see the deer in the glen. Uh, I know it's somewhere, you know, or it's way too zoomed in where it's like everything brown might be a deer. Oh, wait, that's a tree. Like, we don't know, right? We need to have a proper view of what sin is in our life so we can identify it, so we can deal with it the way the Bible calls us to deal with it. So I will say this. Today's study is not going to be an exhaustive uh, dissertation on sin. If you want that, go take a hermartiology class at a, at a seminary somewhere, okay? They can tell you everything you need to know about sin. This is really going to be more about a practical understanding of how we can deal with sin in our lives, so we can identify it, so we can deal with it. So let's start here. James uh, 1, 13 through 15 says this. It says, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt. So the first thing to understand about temptation, which is this first idea we're looking at here, is God does not tempt. He never has tempted. He never will tempt. And, and, and so, you know, I hear people say things, things like, God's testing me right now. Well, I would be careful in that. Because maybe in, in some sense, you, you could probably say that, like testing the quality of your life, helping to reveal things in your life, yes. But God never sets out to trip you up. He never puts things in your path to trip you up or to draw you into sin. He doesn't do that. Now, has he allowed us to continue to live in this, broke, this world that's broken by sin? Sure. Yeah, he has. Has he allowed us to live in these bodies, that, that, uh, this flesh that, that uh, can continually be tempted? Sure he has. And thank God that we're going to be freed from that one day, right? Has he still allowed Satan to, to exist in the world? Are the accuser, the adversary, the deceiver, the tempter, the liar, the lawless one, has he allowed him to exist in this world? Yes, he has. But drawing a direct line and saying, God is tempting me right now, we've got to be careful with that because that is never true. It's not a true statement. So how, how does it go down is the question. And this is important. 
verse 14, he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own desire for more than what he, what he has. Carried away um, is, is interesting because it actually gives kind of a picture of being dragged away. Like there's an initial reluctance to it. I really don't want to go there, but I get dragged toward this thing. And I'm enticed, which actually means to lure. It's a, it's a fishing term, right? Anybody fish in, in here? Um, you know, if you, get, if you get, well, if you're not using live bait, you get a lure that actually has, sometimes has like reflective material on it, right? And you throw that in, and the idea is that the fish will go, ooh, look at that flashy thing over there, right? And hopefully go and bite onto it. That we, that temptation happens when we're drawn into, we're lured, we're enticed into something. And it, it, this word even has a sense of, of kind of cleverly enticed or, or, um, or, or resourcefully enticed. That, it, that, it, that, that the way we're drawn to things, is, 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 it fools us, right? Just like that lure in a, in a, in a pond fools that fish into thinking that's something good, and they bite on it. But the important thing to understand is that in verse 14, sin has not occurred yet. It's really, really important. I remember coming to, to this understanding. I was dealing with, particularly I think of the fact that I was dealing with lust, mental thoughts of lust. And I was struggling with these things. And, I, and, and it seemed like nothing I could do could keep me from like, being drawn to that idea, those ideas in my head. And in my mind, I thought because I was drawn to them, because, because those thoughts were appealing to me, that I had already failed. So why not kind of sit on those thoughts a little bit? I've already failed. But no, 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 no. That drawing, that being lured to it, that's temptation. That's common to man. We are tempted. We are drawn to things that are not good for us. But sin has not occurred yet. 15 says, then, which is a, is a word that means a progression in time. Then after that, after you've been drawn in, lured in, then when lust, those desires have conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So he goes into kind of this, uh, this, this pregnant imagery here, right? So, so now you, you've been drawn in, you have this temptation that's drawing you over, but then your will comes into it, your choice comes into it, and you go, yeah, I'm going to bite on that lure. I'm going to think about that thought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sit on that thought for a little bit more. I'm going to actually do the thing that I'm being drawn into and actually have that action. That moment of choice creates a pregnancy that gives birth to sin. And sin always, we've talked about this, always, 100% of the time, brings death. Always. For me, this was revolutionary in my life. When I could recognize that, temp that temptation was not sin, that I had not failed yet, then I had that moment of choice, right? I had that moment to go, yeah, that looks good, but I don't have to choose it. Really important. And, and, and it's, it's 
uh, something that goes along with this is Jesus' experience, right? This is Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I actually wish the NASB would, would translate that empathize. You, you, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Sympathy's like, oh, that's really sad for you. My heart goes out to you. Empathy's like, yeah, I've been there, right? So, so this is really empathy that he's talking about here. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who, who cannot empathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to, be, to have human weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Do you see the distinction there? Do you see that they're drawing a line saying Jesus was tempted a lot in his life? We don't even know how much, but it was what's common to man, which is a lot. Can we agree we get tempted a lot, right? Jesus was tempted a lot, but never sinned. Never crossed the line from being drawn to things, enticed by things. And, and, and don't get this idea in your mind. I, I've talked to students a lot about this. We look at Jesus and it's like Superman, right? The bullets can't hurt me. No, 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 no. Jesus was human man, not Superman. And he had weaknesses like we do. And he was drawn to things. He was tempted by things. When he was tempted in the wilderness, that wasn't like, yeah, I'm not very hungry. I don't need those those stones to be bread. He was starving to death, right? He wanted those stones to be bread, but he didn't sin. Therefore, this is the great part of this. I could have left this off, but I just like it. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the solution, right? To run in our moments of weakness, in our moments of temptation, to run to the guy who gets it, who understands it, is going to be like, yeah, yeah, temptation's rough, not easy. Let me give you some help with that thing that you're dealing with. Important. Important concept, definitely an important concept it has been in my life, is that temptation is not sin. Can temptation lead to sin? Sure it can. But temptation in and of itself is not sin. And I think that's important because when we broaden the definition of sin, a lot of times when I've seen people do that, I've had these conversations, the reason why they're broadening it is they're like, I'm tempted all the time. So I've sin- I, I just sin all the time. My life is just sin- No. Draw a line. Temptation's one thing. Getting lured, enticed is one thing. But the choice to sin, separate thing. Different thing. All right, let's look at another aspect of this. First John uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now, we, we might be getting a little rudimentary here. We are, we are probably getting rudimentary, but I think it's important to, to get the rudiments and understand this. To practice sin is to practice lawlessness. And to practice lawlessness is to practice sin. Those things, those, those are the same thing. So then the question becomes, what's lawlessness? Well, Law in, in, in Greek is namas, and, and lawlessness, this word is anomia, anamas, basically. And the a is just like in English, if you put an a before something, it, it makes it like the opposite, right? Like un, 
the un prefix, the, the a prefix works, works the same. So it's that same thing. It's, it's not law. It's, it's, it's anti-law, right? So it's when we see the law, we see what, we, what, what the principle is, we understand what the principle is, we understand where the line is, and we go, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I, I get it. I understand what, what God says. I understand what the law says. I understand, I understand the rule that, I, that I'm supposed to adhere to. But, yeah, I'm not really interested in that at this moment. I think this is important for us. Sin is willful disobedience. It's willful. It's a choice. I don't want to do that thing that I know is the right thing to do. I don't want to do that. And the flip side, again, really rudimentary. This is just a little farther down in in chapter 3. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Don't be fooled. Because they could have been fooled back then. There were some people floating some ideas that were weird. Uh, And you can be deceived today. There's definitely some some ideas that are weird out there. the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now, important to understand, words like righteousness get theologically charged a lot. And what happens, one of the principles I used to teach in hermeneutics is, we take a, a word, especially a theologically charged word like righteousness, and, and we take it out of, out of this context. We know what it means in this context, and then Every time we see the word righteousness, we treat it the same way. You can't do that because the writers aren't treating it the same way, and John's not treating it the same way here as he treat, as as Paul te- treats it in Romans. Okay, this is not righteousness from Romans. This is not this is not justification by faith making us righteous in God's sight. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about practical righteousness, like when I when I say I did the right thing right there, like in that moment, I did the right thing, then, then that's righteousness. That's what he's talking about. So in order to say, I just did the right thing, what do I have to do in that moment? I have to do the right thing, right? And if I do the right thing, then I've done the right thing, right? Yeah, you guys are like, of course, that's the way it works, right? Yeah, like, but that's what he's saying. Don't be deceived, because even in our world today, it's like, well, who defines what's right, right? Who defines the right thing? Well, he's pretty clear about it. Who defines the right thing? Just as he is righteous, right? Who, who, who decides what's right and wrong? Well, he has a standard. So either we do the right thing by his standard, and if we do, we've, we're right, right? We've done the right thing. Or we choose lawlessness. Now, you know, everybody's probably going, yeah, of course. If you do right, you've done right. And if you do wrong, you've done wrong. Yeah, but I think it's important to to define because I think we can be deceived. Right is right. Wrong is wrong, right? Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, this is David speaking, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love this prayer. I've used it so many times over the years in my own life that, that 
we need to understand that sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but this is definitely true for me, that I don't know when I'm doing some things that are hurtful to me and to others, right? And so sometimes I, I'm just blind to it. Sometimes I, I just I ignore it. I'm too busy focused on this other thing over here. And, and I love that David, you know, the man after God's own heart, like this is his heart. He's like, he opens himself up. And I know for me, I've been close to God at times. I'm like, I don't really want you to deal with that part of my heart because I don't really know really what's in there and I don't want to go there, right? So let's just hide that thing. Let's not, no, but see, David's like, hey, open me up. Like, search me. Reveal, I want to know if there's anything hurtful in me. I want to know if I'm being hurtful to myself or hurtful to others in my life. Try me. That word try me is like like audit my life. Like audit's a bad word, right? <laughs> if you get audited, you're like, oh, no, thank you. But, it, but for God, we, we want him to audit us. Like, like look at every part of me. Audit me. And deal with clearly revealed sin in my life. Not some, you know, fog of sin, but show me specifically in my life where I have hurtful patterns. And, 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 and so we need to open ourselves up to that. We need to be clear on what's right and what's wrong and that doing right is right and doing wrong is doing wrong and being open to God's working and showing us things and revealing things. But I think... Part of the reason why I wanted to lay this out is there's an important distinction to be made here too in that sin, let me flip that around, failure is not always sin. Human failure is not always sin. Sin is always failure, but human failure is not always sin. So I'll give you an example. If, if I take my car and I run over the neighbor's dog, would we all agree that that's probably not good, right? If I'm like, if I see the neighbor's dog, I really don't like the neighbor's dog, and I'm driving, I'm like, ooh, there he is, right? Like, that's not good. I should not run over the neighbor's dog, right? But what if I'm backing out of my driveway, and I'm like, what was that? And I go, look, and I've ran over the neighbor's dog. Is that sin? Is that wrongdoing? No, it's failure, right? I'm limited as a human. I've only got two eyes. I couldn't see behind me. I can't see all things at all times, right? Uh, Sometimes I'm going to fail just out of my human limitation. And have I morally sinned in that moment when when I've done that? No, that's human failure. It's not wrongdoing aiming my car at the dog, that's wrongdoing, right? There's a difference. I lo- this verse is great. Um, I remember um, doing a Bible study in, in, in my college group back in the, in the day um, and, and going over this, this verse, this passage with, with the college group. And I was struggling with some of the ideas here, and I'll tell you why. It says this, May the Lord God, may, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you. Now you might look at that and go, okay, that's a pretty plain 
sounding verse, right? Increase in your, and abound in your love for one another. But the problem that I was having at the time is I knew what the word love in this verse meant. And it doesn't mean what we might look at it on the surface and think, which is that like fond feelings for people. Like, I love you and I increase in my fond feelings about you. Like, we can understand that, right? Like, how that kind of your feelings for someone grows over time, right? Um, That's not what's talked about here. It's the word agape, and agape is always a a doing good. It's it's always an action-based word. So either you are agapeing or you are not agapeing, and so I'm struggling with this as a college student. I'm like, how does this make any sense? How can you increase and abound in agape because you're either doing it or you're not doing it? And then I got married. And I started to figure out that as much as I loved Melissa and wanted to love her and serve her and love her in a self-sacrificial way, and a lot of times, let's just be clear, I chose not to love her, right? I sinned against her. I've done that plenty. But there were times where I truly wanted to love and serve her with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just wanted to love her, and I was failing. And I was failing. And I was failing. I remember this very, very clearly early on in our marriage where I was just frustrated. It wasn't Melissa's fault. I just didn't know how to love her. And I knew her, I felt like I knew her pretty well. But we got married and I found out I don't know her at all. No, I, know, I knew her well, but I, knew, I didn't know a lot about her. You know, lots of things that I needed to know. And I found this out, that the more I knew her, the more I could love her, Right? The more I could make choices that that cared for her. Even though I wanted to care for her, I was failing at caring for her. And those failures, let's just be clear, were not sin. When I did sin against her, was that sin? Sure. And I did that. But those failures were just failures in my understanding, in my limitedness. And even, you know, 21 years later... It's way better. My understanding of Melissa has way increased, but I am sure I fail now. I know I fail now because sometimes I don't get her, right? I don't understand her in the, in the depth of the way that I need to understand her to love her. But there's a difference between wrongdoing and failure. Do we see, do we see that distinction? It's important. We're limited. We're going to fail. Point on your handout is this. Sin is intentional wrongdoing. Sin is intentional wrongdoing. So now at this point, we might be thinking, hey, you know what? As long as I follow God's rules, I'm going to fail sometimes, but, but I can, um, I've avoided sin. As long as I can like, nail down God's rules and do God's rules. The problem is it's not that easy, right? Uh, the, the, one of the biggest problems that the religious leaders had in the first century is they were doing the rules really well. In fact, the most respected people in their society, they were nailing the Old Testament 
law. And actually, a lot of these other laws that were created by the religious leaders in generations before them, they were nailing it. You listen to, to Paul, and he was like, in regards to the law, I was perfect. And I don't think he's overstating that. I really do believe in Paul's mind, he believed he nailed the Old Testament. He nailed it down. But Paul wasn't saying that was a good thing. He was saying, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Romans uh, 14. Had to get some Romans in today. Uh, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not for the for the Lord he does not eat. He's not eating the Lord, but he doesn't eat for the Lord. You guys get the idea. Um, and gives thanks to God. Okay, that's a little convoluted, and we'll get into the details of this when we actually get into 14. But the bottom line is this, that, that there's, a, there's a, a conscience thing going on with us, right? So for some people, they regard some days over other days, okay? Um, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, believed you should not do any work on Sunday, right? So closed on Sunday, Still closed. Hobby Lobby, owned by believers, closed on Sunday, right? Uh, Eric Liddell, who was an Olympic runner, famously didn't run on Sunday, right? Because for their consciences, they did not believe you could run on Sunday. Now, can we work on Sunday? Biblically, sure we can. Can we run a race on Sunday? Sure we can. Can we open a business on Sunday? Sure we can, right? We know that this freedom exists in the text. But if Eric Liddell, who believed it was wrong to run on Sunday, ran on Sunday, would he be sinning? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. Even though that doesn't have to do with God's rules, right? In his own conscience, he believed it was wrong. So he was right not to run on Sunday. And he honored God. And we, and we can watch the movie Chariots of Fire and applaud him for making the choice to not, <coughs> excuse me, to, to not sin <coughs> against God. He, he goes on, he says, so in verse 12, he says, so each one will, of us will give account of himself before God. Eric Liddell is going to stand before God and give account for how he treated his Sundays, right? Truett Cathy is going to have to do that same thing right? We're going to have to do that same thing. Verse 14 says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now you got to understand in the first century there were two big problems with food. One was you had Jewish believers who, who were under the old covenant in which there were certain foods that were unclean. And in fact, they were sinful for them to consume those foods, right? But now they're in the new covenant and they're trying to figure it out. And it still, they still feel a little guilty having a little shellfish, right? So, so, so for them, they need to have a clear conscience. Like they probably, sh- they probably should wait to eat that if they're feeling guilty about that, right? Uh, feeling like it's not right. The other thing and the thing he's addressing right here is there was food that was sacrificed to idols, right? Now, are idols anything? No. Are they gods? 
No. Can they contend with God? No. Is, is food sacrificed to a little wooden statue somehow tainted now? No. But they would sell that, that food, and people would buy it at a discount. It was the discount market. And some people would buy it because it saved them money, but then they would feel guilty, like, ah, this was sacrificed to an idol. I don't feel, it feels weird. They should not eat, right? You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't wound your conscience in that way. Because, verse 23 kind of sums it up, he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's eating not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a super important concept. Whatever violates my relationship with God, this trusting relationship I have with him, I need to avoid those things at all costs because those things are sin for me. If I think drinking a cup of coffee is is somehow against God's will for my life, I need to root coffee out of my life. I need to do that. Some people believe like you've got to take care of your body because somehow God thinks that's, that's important, right? And you might think that. You know what? You need to take care of your body. Whatever that means for you, you need to do that. Because anything you do that goes, yeah, I know this is the right thing to do by, by my relationship to God, but I'm going to choose the alternate thing, that is sin for you. And honestly, might not be sin for someone else. And you go, wow, that sounds like relative relativity relative thinking there is a little bit of relativity in this there is i know we push back at that the truth is not relative but this principle is 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 true you know in the past things like um mixed bathing anybody familiar with the idea of mixed bathing that doesn't mean to have multiple people in a bath it means swimming with someone from the opposite gender that was wrong you could not go to the beach and go swim with someone from the, the, another gender, you know, guys and girls swimming together. Can't do that. You couldn't dance. And definitely you couldn't dance in the church. Like maybe go hide your dance at the dance hall or something, but not in the church, right? Um, any, cons- any amount of consumption of alcohol has been believed to be like, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, watching R-rated movies, no, that's definitely sin, you know. Uh, gambling, uh, tattoos, um, having a Christmas tree, uh, sending your kids out on Halloween, all of these things, there's no specific violation scripturally, but it's been kind of a standard that we go, ah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Then we got to stay away from that because we don't want to wound this relationship that we have with God. If you believe it's wrong for you to participate in that and you choose to participate in it, it is wrong for you. It is sin for you. James 4.17 4, says something similar, which is, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So both this includes like inaction too. Because some people are like, I'm just going to do nothing. And if I do nothing in my life, I can't blow it, right? I can't. No, no, no. Inaction in a moment where you need to take action and do the right thing, that's sin for you too. The point in your handout is actually just straight from Romans 14. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever violates this trusting relationship we have with God, it's sin.
bottom of your handout, I'm just going to read that for us. Identifying sinful patterns in our lives is an important pre, pre can't say that word prerequisite to addressing them. If we overly narrow the definition, we end up ignoring patterns in our thinking and actions that are dealing death to us and others. If we overly broaden the definition, it makes it impossible to address specific sins as God makes us aware of them. God God has an amazing plan, not only for forgiveness of sins, but also victory over sins, which we're getting into next week. We need to be opening our lives up to God's inspection and being thankful he, being thankful as he reveals things that are hurting us and others, because identification is the crucial first step to God's transformation. And what I wanted to do just at the end here is, um, is take a moment— and this is, this is a moment, like I said, I've used this verse many, many, many times in my own life. And, and practice this just, just together. Um, now, let me just say this. You're not going to be required to reveal anything that God reveals in your life in the current moment. Um, it's, this is simply between you and God. But I thought it would be great just to take a moment and do this. Practice this thing that David call, calls us to, that, that David did in his own life. And so as I read it, maybe in your minds, uh, I'm actually going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes, and in your minds, say this with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's take a few minutes and allow him to do that. Lord, thank you for anything you've revealed in this moment. Thank you for um, revealing things in our lives as you continue to reveal things in our lives. Help lead us in your way. just end with this, that uh, I think thankfulness is the proper response as God reveals things in our lives. It's easy to feel shame, uh, and probably there'll be a twins of shame if God reveals something to you. But if I have a thorn in my foot that's causing blood to run out of the bottom of my foot, and I don't know it, isn't it good when it's revealed to me, and I can pluck it, deal with it? Because I'm like, ah, oh, nice, thank you. Yeah, I, I saw that, right? It's, it's a good thing for God to reveal hurtful patterns in our life, not, not, a, not a bad thing.